Welcome to the VoxGig Podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. Developer relations is not just for software. You can also have developer relations for hardware. In this episode, I talk to Matthias Wagner, CEO of Flux.ai which is a desktop tool for designing printed circuit boards. Matthias wants Flux.ai to be the github.com of printed circuit boards. And he's already pretty far along. Let's talk to Matthias and find out more. Matthias, welcome. Welcome to the Fireside with Gig podcast. And today we are talking about your company, Flux.ai. And you are a little bit different from our usual guest because your stuff is to do with hardware. So I'm not going to try and explain what you do. It looks pretty cool. I love your website design. It's really awesome. Uh, but I'm going to hand over to you. Matthias, what does Flux.ai do? Yeah, good question. First of all, thanks for having me. You know, uh, Great to be here with you, Richard. Um, Flux.ai is an online design tool to design printed circuit boards, PCB boards, like in the motherboard in your laptop or in your smartphone. Um, we're taking like you know, a modern approach of putting, you know, like, like Figma in the browser, it's collaborative. You know, we have AI functionality that makes, you know, electronics design generative that you can describe or brainstorm with an AI agent uh, around things like your build of materials. Like, you know, I have this favorite example where I say, look, imagine you wanted to build a smart chocolate brownie oven. Um, and so you can use the AI agent here to like really iterate, you know, what components would be required, what the trade-offs are. You can like, you know, drill down on, your requirements be like, hey, look, this has to be battery powered. I want this to be like on the go when I go camping, or you know, whatever, wherever you want to go with this. And so, you know, it's not just that we're like really helping uh, people who already design PCB boards to design these boards faster and cheaper. We're also helping people who are like designing their first PCB board, you know, to make that. Yeah, and is it? Uh, are you? Do you aim primarily at the sort of uh, Kickstarter market, or is it for professionals, or is it both? You know, we target engineers. We want to give engineers better tools, um, you know, and so in that sense, we're speaking to the individual and we're not worried so much what the application is. But, you know, you can imagine here there is on the professional side, there's contractors, there's small, medium businesses. There's a lot of like, you know, large Fortune 500 businesses um, using Flux. Uh, we also have lots of students, lots of hobbyists, but then also people coming from other fields, like imagine software engineers coming in here want to design a board or mechanical engineers by the building of robot and they need a controller board or like a sensor board for something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I like that way you described it, sort of Figma for PCP, PCB boards, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so did you use that? Phrase for with your investors. That sounds, that sounds like a, a I, winning phrase. I, I, it's a good question. I use it with people where I feel like they know what Figma is, but turns out yeah. not everybody does. So sometimes I say Google Docs as a replacement, um, and then you know typically also it's like, look, yeah, I say you know the product is on the intersection of GitHub, Figma, and Jarvis from Iron Man. Iron Man. It's it's like GitHub. If you think about this global community that has built this public repository of reusable components. And it's like Figma if you think about like a design tool that's yeah. collaborative and lives in the browser. And it's like Jarvis from Iron Man if you want to like talk to an AI agent to yeah. help you build hardware. And is that, I mean, is that important? I I, I remember about 10 years ago exploring uh, the idea of doing a startup in the IoT space. 
mostly around the cloud end of things and providing a, a database and that sort of stuff. It had come from a uh, consulting project that I did for uh, alarm systems. Uh, but of course, I am not a proper engineer at all. I did mathematics, so <laughs> I'm only a coder. Uh, and, I, and I, yeah, I, I mean, I did get really into it because it's super fun, right? The soldering iron and burning out LEDs and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so manifesting uh, things in physical space, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so, I mean, do, do you find that, uh, do you find that there's a difference between the engineers that come to you and I think if people are, are are coders, they have certain expectations around what their tooling is going to do. So is your stuff inspired by that or is does it come more from an engineering philosophy? Yeah, I mean, if you think about, yeah, it's definitely inspired by software engineering, right? So a big aha moment I had, which led to like starting the company, was that software engineering had come so far in my lifetime, right? It's been truly democratized yes. as a craft. Um, and that in contrast, hardware design felt like has not moved at all since I first opened a CAD tool or like an you know, electronics design uh, a tool in the 90s. And so there was clearly something broken, it felt. Um, and, you know, and then you know, people kept stinging around saying hardware is hard. And I was like, well, software also isn't exactly easy. It's just we've made it easy, right? Like we're not punching cards anymore. If I had to have build the web app by mm. punching cards, yeah, that, you know, be just as hard as, as making an IoT uh, 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 PCB board, um, or worse, frankly. Um, and so then, yeah, you know, started looking into the, the existing tooling and contra contrasting that with software development. But in software development, we have like fast iteration cycles. Why do we have fast iteration cycles, right? Or like fast feedback loops? It's because we have modularized almost all of it. Like if I need to encrypt something, I'm not going to spend here the next six months writing an encryption library. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go to a place like GitHub where there's a competition of encryption libraries for different purposes with different strengths and weaknesses and just grab one from there. Um, and then contrast that with hardware. If I needed an amplifier, I'd be building that from scratch. Right? Yeah, you, yeah, you would. I, I, the reason I bring up my, my own... Uh, experiences from 10 years ago they, they didn't last very long is even though i was really enthusiastic about it and I, I bought all the books you know starting from scratch the very basics of working out your voltages and all that sort of stuff um yeah there didn't seem to be much like you said reusable you had to burn out the leds yourself right yeah exactly, uh, exactly. so is that i mean th th it, it sounds like you want to be the you want to position yourselves like GitHub, maybe? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, yeah, it, it is, it rests on these like, three pillars, GitHub, Figma, and Jarvis, right? Yeah. I think we want to, like, we, we're taking the transferable ideas from all these three and turning them into uh, one product here. So, I mean, let, let's let's just take a closer look at that then. On GitHub, I can share my code and I can put it under a specific license like MIT or BSD or whatever that people can then use. And that's really important because you can share and use that commercially. So do you guys support the same things? Like if I'm if yeah. I put a little circuit, can I say, oh yeah, this is like free to use or MIT or how, how does that work in, in your world? 
Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, that's exactly how it works. So on Flux, right, everything is a project, and projects can be infinitely nested into each other. Um, and so you can have that, you know, the amplifiers talked about as a project, and you can design that. You have others, you can others, others can review that, others can contribute improvements, right? Others can go and fork this and make their own variant of it that's more specialized for one or the other application, let's say, or like cost optimization or whatever you're going for. And then yeah, somebody can like take that amplifier and say, turn that into an audio amplifier. And then the next person, well, they want to build a a Roomba, like vacuum-like kind of thing, and they need like a, a sound module on there, and they're going to use, you know, the 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 ampli audio amplifier built on top of your amplifier in there, right? And so you create these like dependency chains, just like you have on GitHub, right? Where like one project okay. you pull in depends on like five other projects. Yeah, so the engineers, your relationship with the engineers is... is central to the company right building that oh yeah building that community um so have you have you done have you taken much of an approach to building the community or have you focused on the product first yeah um great question so i think you know if you contrast what we've been doing to say like building github right when when tom preston werner who's mm. one of investors built github they didn't have to build git Right. right. Yes. Yes. They yes, they, yes, they had yes. that piece, and they built they built the hub around that, the community around that. And in our case, right, none of the building blocks really existed in a way that we could just recombine them. So we had oh, to build everything. You had to build everything. Yes. Yeah. And, and okay. so it was it was clear from the outset that the, the vision was grand here, and that it would take a long time, and that we had somehow had to figure out a way here. Because we needed feedback to build this product, that the product wouldn't be useful for a long time. So that we had to build a community of people who believed in the same vision and were willing to deal with how crude it would be for a long time. Um, so that someday we'll 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 get to that the, the promised land yeah. here. And that's always how we communicated that to people. It's like, look, this is a very long road. We're here at day one, and, and this is very far away from where we want to go. You know, we offer here for you to join us along this long path. And so something we did early on, probably like two, three months into the company being founded, they send out a bi-weekly, we call it back and then we call it the change log. We just, you know, keep people updated on where we were at, what we were working on, what we shipped that week. Um, not with the intent that they would like come back and try it out right away, although that, that was great that some people did and provided feedback, mm. right? But that we will just keep people informed that this is moving, you know, that, we, that we were committed to make progress over a long amount of time, that we were committed, right? Um, another thing we did then, you know, we launched a, a public beta really early. Like essentially the company was founded October 2019, and then in summer 2020, we shipped a public beta and we kept that running all the way till the public launch. And, you know, we, yeah, we had then a, a we experimented a lot of like alternative channels than email. We had like we tried Discord, a Facebook group, Slack. Eventually, we arrowed down on our, on just Slack because we felt like look, we were spread too thin, too early uh, across too many channels. And then we wanted uh, thinking we had is we wanted to go where users already are. Yeah. And at the time, at least in hardware, there wasn't many people using Discord or Facebook groups, but everybody had a Slack at, at work, and so it was easy to switch from there to our Slack. Ah. And that worked really well, right? And then yes. this started really small with like five or ten people. And then, you know, it, it you know, if you look at the curve today, it's like 
flat for years like this. And then, <laughs> then here, you know, we did a public launch and yes. then you hit that inflection point, yes. right? That's the and that that's is, the SAS curve, isn't it? Right? It's always flat for a long time. Yeah, 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 totally. Right? It's like uh, the overnight success, a decade in the making. Yeah, um, as they joke. But yeah, it's, it's you know we had um, strong conviction that this is what we wanted and what other people wanted, and then then help bridge the gap of like keeping at it for years and years to to actually get that critical mass of like functionality into the product that was now ready to be launched. And right, I would say that even today, we're just day one here. We're nowhere close to what we actually want to deliver. Um, that said, it's probably, you know, like now late morning, you know, on day one, and you can actually build uh, uh, lots of categories of products with Flux today. And lots of people do. It's been really exciting. But I mean, what you have at the moment is definitely usable, right? And it's definitely usable oh, yeah. production stuff, right? And it's, it's, oh, quite, totally, it's totally. quite impressive, right? If you go play around yeah. with it. And I, encourage- I, I, always tell, I, I always tell people like, but the dream that we have is, that we want to enable a 12-year-old to build their own iPhone. Well, today, you can't quite build your own iPhone, but you can build pretty much everything else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so, but yeah, you know, these like high-density, high-scale applications or like, you know, some stuff where let's say like, you know, a controller for like a, a, a manned rocket that you can't do today, you know, but we're working towards that too, to capture yeah, these use yeah. cases too. <laughs> Let me know when you're doing rockets. <laughs> then, we need yeah. to, then we need to talk again. Uh, so you found that's interesting that you mentioned Slack. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the developer relations community about uh, what tools one should use for online communities, right? So you have your Discords and Slack, various other tools, and this you can find quite a few blog posts where people say you you should use Discord and nothing, everything else is a mistake, or you should use Slack and everything else is a mistake. Uh, but I think in your case. It sounds like Slack was a good choice because your users were coming from corporate environments and yeah. corporate access to Slack is usually is usually okay, whereas Discord is seen as a gaming site, so it's often blocked by, by the corporates. Yeah, and that's been changing, right? But I think what I tell other founders is like, just go where the users already are, right? Uh, like Slack isn't the perfect tool to build community. No, no, means, no, right? also, no. We're running on the free account too because it'd be way too expensive to run on the paid account. Yeah, like, because the whole I pricing mean, this is... model isn't, it's cumbersome, but you know, this is where users were. And I think yeah. that's why it worked, right? And it was really diff- would have been difficult at the time to push them over to Discord. And look, yeah. you can always expand yeah. later to other channels. Exactly, exactly. Oh man, that drives me nuts about Slack because there's so many really successful, uh, really vibrant developer relations communities on Slack, but everything disappears after three months because I know. nobody can afford to pay. <laughs> I think Slack is missing out on a use case, right? Oh, I totally it agree, makes, right? It, it makes sense for a company, but not for a community, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah and I mean, have... and Discord is eating their lunch there, for sure, right? I mean, the, the yeah. trend largely today is towards Discord, for sure, right. because, you for... know, it's much more control. It's, like, affordable for, like, a large community. Yeah, yeah it's... I mean, you know, a comp- I'm sure you would, and I, I know a lot of companies that would pay, that would pay to have a community Slack. They would pay something. Right? Oh, yeah, some yeah, value. for sure. Um, just, just not, not five per dollars user. per user. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, we've, uh, we've spoken on this podcast to quite a few guests about uh, how they run their Slack communities. And I think m- maybe this applies to Discord as well. What model of community do you have? Is it the one where all of the users are in one place, or do you create... 
sub communities or do you create individual ones for for big customers? What approach do you take? Yeah, good question. No, it's all in one big place right now. Yeah. Um, we have a bunch of different channels, you know, from like just, um, I mean, you know, just showcasing projects to requesting help to uh, just cool stuff people find on the internet, you know. So I think it's a combination of like product support, education, just talking about cool shit, meeting others, right? Like I need help. I'm going to build, you know, um, a motor controller. I've never done this before. Or like, you know, I need help in antenna design who has done this before. Yeah. And just happen to connect people. Um, you know, our whole team is active there. So it's also like for us a great way to see what people are up to, what they struggle with. Also to go deep, like on, you know, Here's an idea somebody had to change a feature or add a feature and, and just geek out on that, right? Um, and that makes it also then easy for us, right? Then just to let's say it's a it's a it's a it's a bug, then you know you can come back with the fix, be like, here, I want to try this now. And you have this really direct channel. Which like yeah. otherwise, right? I mean, sure, you have these kind of like messaging features in our uh, 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 bug ticketing uh, uh, platform, but it's just not as immediate and not as not no, as quick, no, right? No. And then then on, then in chat. And do you have a rota system for people to manage the community? Do you have a community manager? Is it, or yeah, is it just is it or is it just sort of casual and ad hoc? Or do you have a system? Great question. I mean, you know, we've iterated through many different models over the years. How it works today is that yes, we have like somebody who's in charge of the community, right? And they post a. But what, we still post the change log every two weeks, you know. So they post that. They don't just email it out. They also post that in Slack. You know, so they're in general uh, in charge of communication and response. And um, yeah, so, but then additionally, right? So yeah, a lot of the, our team members just hang out there. You know, I have the tab always open um, just to see what's going on and just reply to questions sometimes on weekends. We have then also like these days a lot of power users, right? Yeah. Who are active there and, and, and help other people out, especially new users. Um, and then, you know, we have these like, you know, product uh, ambassadors at Flux, what we call them. So these are like former hardware engineers that now work at Flux to help us design the product, but also help our users, right? Um, yeah. Get onboarded and unstuck, right? And, and and learn from them and listen, you know, and have to flow back into the product in a more systematic way. And they're definitely all hanging out there too. Um, yeah. I think you guys are doing something really interesting, right? So if the CEO in the Slack channel of in the community, right? And that's you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get so many uh, people in developer relation, relations asking, how can I grow my community and how can I keep it healthy? Well, just have the CEO participate sometimes, right? Because yeah. as the user, for me, that's like amazing, right? That's, yeah, okay, this agree. team really believes in what they're doing, right? Um, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I wish I always wish I had more time for this, right? Yeah. Um, and I have that where I have like weeks where like I open Slack and it's just like, Every channel is unread. And I'm like, oh my god, you know. Yeah. Um, and you guys are not small, then, right? You you you're you're funded. You have what like fifty people, right? Yeah, so well, you, have, you have a busy job. You have a proper CEO job, but you still mm-hmm. participate, which is amazing. I would say so. Yeah. yeah. But you know, it's also like with Slack that makes it easy. This is a mobile app. I can do this on the couch, right? Or like, yeah. You know, when I'm in a cab or you know waiting for something somewhere, then yeah, I do that. Like other people read their newspaper, I guess. Yeah. And it's also like you know. I'm a geek and a nerd and like started a company because I am really excited about this. And so it, it is maybe kind of my way of reading a newspaper, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what I like about this is, 
and we, we are talking about engineer relations here, not developer relations, but they are very similar. Um, but I, I've often spoken to other guests about the the idea of uh, the the vibe of a company, right? The developer spirit, which is something hard to create. Uh, you don't create it by having good documentation or lots of examples. It's often created by the leadership um, mm-hmm. having that spirit already. Um, and it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you've, you've kind of captured that for engineers as well, right? If, if I'm an engineer and I join your Slack channel, there's Matthias and he's answering my questions about circuit boards. Uh, I just understand that the, that Flux.ai actually cares about what I'm doing. Uh, it's and it's ex- some people would say it's an expensive signal for you as the CEO to send because you have to spend your time on it. Um, but it sounds like it's been critical to get your community to where it is to the success of the company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know we. I have done this myself, and the reason it was so cumbersome is why I started a company, right? Um, and then everybody who is on the team has experienced this pain in one way or another. And I mean, and especially right, the everybody at Flux who's like user facing, right? All our advocates, mm. they they all used to work nine to five, you know, 40 hours a week on designing hardware themselves. And so they right, they can see eye to eye with users. Yeah. Um and we've tried to also have like a diverse team. So not just people from Apple here, right? But have people from Apple, have people that work at SMBs and have people who just been contractors, right? Because these different user personas, they're also, yeah, they have different needs, yeah. right? And a different way to engage um, and different uh, problem sets. Yeah, um, that is important. But we'll always say that it's, it's easier to uh, teach a, a former hardware engineer how to run a community than vice versa. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I think that's probably true, true for many true. for for, yeah. for many startups, right? That whatever you're doing, it's easier to like, yeah, teach the domain experts how to run a community than yeah. the other around. Be slightly slightly more friendly. I have I have a question for you. So, mm-hmm. you know, you 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 come from a place of working in hardware. Uh, you probably have always worked closely with software engineers, but this time you had to lead a team of software engineers to build a software product first. What was that like? Did you find did you find it almost the same or different? I'm really interested in you know, your perspective. Yeah, I've done both actually. Yeah. I worked at Meta as a product manager, leading, ah, like okay, working with software okay. teams. So no, I, I was familiar with both. Um, but maybe there's a related question in here, right? Which is like making software to build hardware. This is a first for me. Yeah, right? and okay. so and so that's a unique challenge here, and that is because mistakes in hardware are so expensive, right? You have to adjust how you build the software to be more fault tolerant, right? And if you're building software to, I mean, social media software like we did at Meta, right? Well, you know. The, the like button not quite looking up to spec is or fine, missing account right? right is not going to yeah, yeah right. people don't won't die not, right yeah exactly right this isn't going to cost anyone millions of dollars but um but you know when you build a design tool for hardware and somebody designs something and sends it off to manufacturing yeah you can lose millions of dollars yeah 
And how do you deal uh, with that problem? I, I, so I'm just, I'm just going to get very nerdy and, and scientific here because from what I've read, uh, when you actually put the hardware together on a board, it's physics, right? It, the, the elements interact with each other in certain ways. Mm. I mean, how much of that do you simulate in the software? Is it possible? Do, are, are there, are, have you come into edge cases where something works and it works perfectly in Flux AI, but then when you actually put it into hardware form, it doesn't or behaves differently? Is that much of a yeah. challenge or am I, am I just going overboard with science? <laughs> no, no, that's definitely a challenge, right? I mean, I think in the ideal world, you'll be able to fully virtually test uh, your project, your circuit. That's the quantum. Um, that's the quantum level, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, that would be amazing, um, and and that's certainly what we what we what the dream is here. Like where we are today is like, yeah, you can definitely um, simulate whole whole parts of the of the project, um, especially if you think about kind of like logic kind of stuff, right? That's actually fairly easy to simulate yeah, and, and, yeah. and build around, right? Like if you think about like a an EV charger, all the safety mechanisms, right? The safety mechanisms in that kind of product can't just rely on, on the firmware, right? You have to have actual hard hardware safety yes. mechanisms. So for example, if the microcontroller fails in the charging, then it has to disconnect. And, yep. and, it has to, and there has to be an analog circuitry here to do that, to ensure that that happens. And these kind of things, they're really actually fun and simulated to test uh, um, and debug and get them right up front. And that saves a lot of time, right? Uh, um, but otherwise, you spend in, in with atoms, right? Testing that. Um, I think, especially around like safety features, it's, you can argue that it's like to, to, you still have to test them, of course, in the real world, but you can do a lot of more iteration virtually. That's also a lot safer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we do that. Yeah. I mean, so, but then there's other categories of issues you can also like just catch with like static rule checking, where it's like, hey, look, these two things can't be closer to each other than X, right? So, you can, you yeah. can do that kind of checking. Uh, but then also, like, if you think about the collaborative nature of Flux, right, it's like a big emphasis is let on other people, make it really easy to get feedback from others and have others review what you've done here. Yeah. Um, and that plays a huge role, right? And and really, and the more we simplify that and take the friction out, right, the more people do that, right? Um, and then another, I mean, so right, you see there's multiple layers to the whole story. There's also the AI agent again. The AI agent too can perform design checks and design reviews, right? And you can feed that AI agent with your own set of requirements and constraints, what certifications you have to adhere to, um, and so on. And then the AI agent will take those things into account. So it's a huge leverage here yeah. um, for users. And on the AI side of things, so did you have you trained your own models or are you just using sort of normal generative LLMs or is it a totally different approach or? Both. Um, okay, awesome. I, I was so it's a hybrid today, but I would also say that you know we launched our uh, AI agent in April this year, and the architecture around it has been like extremely rapidly evolving as the whole AI ecosystem has been rapidly evolving, right? I think it is, but yeah, we're just six months into GPT four, right? This is absolute frontier yeah, work here. It's crazy, right? <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it is, right? It's like it's it's normal now, but it didn't exist just seven months ago. Um, so yeah, so it's rapidly evolving, but it's a mix, right? We use if you think about you know the example I made earlier, you want to build a smart chocolate brownie oven, um, then but certainly having world knowledge like GPT four has is beneficial here, right? 
because it knows what a brownie is, what chocolate is, and what an oven is, and what it means for it to be smart, right? And so then you can then combine that with, for example, more custom uh, parts of the stack here where like we have, you know, a huge library of, of data sheets for semiconductors so that we can like help find the right components and, and what supporting components they need for such a project. And so it's a combination of, of in-house and uh, external models. Does it hallucinate? Uh, yeah, I call it creativity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, but, I mean, but maybe you guys are imposing like these physical rule checks and stuff. So I guess you catch the hallucinations yeah. more than... Yeah, I mean, like, we, 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 you know, the art here is to, if you think about creativity, we want to keep that in the product. Yeah. But if you think about brainstorming on a bill of materials for like that chocolate brownie oven, right? You want gotcha. creativity, right? Um, but if you think about the, the spec for a certain semiconductor, no, you don't want creativity. You yeah. want the actual facts, please. Yeah, you want, right? <laughs> yeah the logic has to work. <laughs> no, no more and, Pentium bugs, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, that, you know, we, 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 we've done a lot of work here to like it providing actual sources, right? And it's citing factual sources for certain categories of tasks. And for other tasks to retain the creativity that creativity that it puts on display. And we've had really amazing use cases of creativity. So like bill of materials brainstorming is one of them, but we've had the users ask it for like a formula to size a, 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 a certain subcircuit. I think it was a signal filter. And it came up with like a very novel way to lay out the math and solve the problem that was way more elegant than anyone had ever seen. And then, you know, at that company, then they had a bunch of like PhDs in the field and they went and then figured out that this formula actually works. And they figured out, yeah, this is just a novel way to solve the problem that's more elegant, wow. right? And that's and how these cool. like large language models work is probably took from like in a from a related field a solution and applied it to this field, right? Um, yeah. Amazing. And so that you want wow. to retain. Yeah. Yeah. So, and this kind of comes back to the democratization that you were talking mm -hmm. about earlier. Um, but here's another question, uh, which again is maybe a little bit controversial on the software end of things. So I use ChatGPT and AI and all that in my work, but I'm, I've been coding for 26 years, right? I can, I, I, I kind of know how to get it to do what I want. And if it gives me rubbish, I know it's rubbish. Um, mm. Or maybe I just want the basic outline of how do I use this software library and then I'll adapt it to my own thing. But I, I I look at the software developers that are starting today and they won't have to go through the same pain that I did to learn a lot of stuff. But maybe I'm <laughs> maybe I'm going back to the stone age here and I should go live in a tree. Uh, is it a problem that they they'll never have that that feedback loop um, that they will always have had this help from the AI and yeah. will that will there be a gap in their abilities? Should we? Is, I mean, maybe I'm an old man shouting at clouds. <laughs> I shouldn't worry about this at all. Um, I don't know what to think about it, Matthias. Myself, when it comes to software. And the same thing must apply in, in, in the world of hardware, right? Yeah. I would generally say that I'm not concerned about the kids of the future. Um, and the reason is that you know, I became a software engineer in the world of Google. And you could make the same argument for Google, that just because I can now go. 
Yeah, search for the yeah, solution yeah, yeah. that yeah. I don't know how to use a library in books anymore, right? Or solve problems on my own. Um, That's a very good point. Well, like even with Google, there were still plenty of problems to be solved on my own, I would argue. Sure. And I think even with AI, there's still lots of problems to be solved on your own. Don't worry. You're not going to get bored. That's, but it's yeah. just, I think it just, it just, it just sets a new bar. Right. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. But the next question, which that generates, it's like, is you know, I have a favorite, like a, a nice quote here. I think um, Steve Jobs said that, right? That a computer is a bicycle for the mind. Yes. And, yes. and I think AI is an e-bicycle for the mind. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Right. It's just it's just farther, faster, less effort. Yeah. No, you're dead right. I like that point, and it generates a question for me, which is, uh, I wonder, is the step change from no Google to Google, right? As software engineers, because I remember that. I remember mm -hmm. a friend sharing the link with me, and suddenly my work doubled in speed. Uh, is that a but there was a learning change? curve too? Oh yeah, there was. Yeah, you had to Google foo, right? You had to learn your. Mm -hmm. You had to learn yeah. how to use Google. But I wonder, is the change from from zero to Google, and Google to AI, which is a bigger change, right? If, uh, it's it's interesting. It's 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 an interesting question, and I I would argue the first one is maybe a bigger change. It's hard to say because you know it wasn't that before Google we didn't have ways to find information in the world or on the internet. It's just that Google just provided like a ten x improvement to the process, right? Because yeah. the the Google fool you related to, right? Just like the especially earlier with Google, you could get better results if you knew how to search how for to things. How to phrase it, yes, yes. How to phrase it. And I think, you know, it's become also more democratized that like Google can, yeah. you know, use more natural language today. But I think with AI, it's the same kind of thing. We clearly see that as people that find out more effective ways to extract what they want from AI today than the average person. Um, and so I think it's very similar. It's just on a different level, right? It's just these things, they're built on top of each other. Yeah. You guys are, you guys are right in the middle of it. Uh, I'm so jealous. Mm -hmm. That's an awesome. That's an awesome, interesting place to be. Uh, yeah, the, the timing just worked out really yeah. nicely for us, right? I mean, the I came from Meta, where we used machine learning for all sorts of stuff, even stuff that we consider mundane. But I saw the impact. You know, a favorite example I have here is like Meta. Wherever you open, like a it's called like a, a people picker. Like you want to invite somebody to something. There's yes. a list of yeah. your friends. This isn't just alphabetically, right? The the first section <laughs> is a machine learning model. Yes, you course. know. Of that course. is actually really good, right? Yeah. At finding the most likely people that you would here want to invite or add or send us wow. to. Yeah. And that's much more effective than having to go for an alphabetical list or having like to search for these people. Um, of course, of course. And this is like a small example, right? And so I knew that there was to be, there would be tons of opportunities to use machine learning in AI for hardware design, obviously. Now, now large language models, I didn't quite foresee having this impact in 2019 when we started a company. But then when it happened, it was pretty clear quickly how how to oh, integrate totally, what totally benefits applicable, it. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean just 100%. think about right just the use case of like like look every semiconductor out there, microprocessors and whatnot, they come with like thousands of pages on PDF data sheets. Yeah. Where all the specifications and requirements and whatever is in there, the application notes and whatnot. And uh, I mean sure if you could read all that, right? That takes a lot of time, you know. Yeah. It turns out that a large language model is incredibly good at extracting the information you're seeking from that. Yeah, incredible, right? Yeah. And within within split seconds, and just that, it's like an incredible use case. Because you know, 
in, in hardware, in, in electronics design, right? A lot of time spent on researching. A lot of time is spent actually typically on Google. Reading trying the sheets. To figure out, yeah. yeah, reading the data sheets, finding the data sheets, finding other components, replacement for things, finding cheaper ways, right? Um, and now you can just have a conversation with the, the, the AI agent that we're offering. And in split seconds, you can retrieve information and create associations that otherwise would have yeah. taken weeks or months to do. But isn't that, which, which is amazing, right? But isn't there another problem, which is sourcing the components, right? So are you guys going to, I don't know, integrate with uh, manufacturers that provide components so that... We already do. Okay. Wow. Yeah. We have a we have a real time index of the components in the world, uh, the stock availability at different distributors, the pricing, right, at uh, at different order quantities. Now all that we have, right, um, and all that information we're like you're finding, we're coming up with new ways, right, to pro- to integrate that information into the AI agent so that the AI agent. That's can what I yeah. Start. That's that's what I meant, right? So the AI. Yeah, so, so when it gen- it doesn't suggest a component that isn't available or is only available in small quantities, or you can only yeah. order ten thousand at a time, right? Which is yeah, not suitable. And you and you can uh, leverage your information, like you know, with, with AI, the thing is like you know you can like train or fine tune a model, and that's an incredible capability, but it's very slow and very expensive to do. Yeah, yeah. right. So you can't do that for something like pricing that changes every hour. Right or stock uh, 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 availability, but you can definitely like fine tune it on general trends that like components from company A are always cheaper than than B, or like, like other way around, components of company B are always higher quality, right? And so these general trends you can definitely encode, um, and so they can be used, you know, to make recommendations. You want a more reliable thing? Well, it's known that Texas Instruments here makes a more reliable version of this component you're looking at, or that this other manufacturer from China makes yeah. a cheaper version, right? And so, you know, you can definitely work with that, and we're working on on, on imp- keep improving that, right? And, and keep, you know, enabling it to access as real-time and accurate information as you possibly can, right? I think the data sheets example is good because data sheets don't change so much, and that was like a kind of like good first yeah, win for yeah. us to get that in because it's Mateus, not really static information. Yeah, Matthias, really, really cool stuff. Uh, I'm going to end with a macroeconomic question. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally changed. Hit me, uh, hit me. So uh, the, the world is going to strange places these days. Do you think that... Um, I don't know, electronic component manufacturing will get more distributed. It, it got very focused on, I guess, China and places like that. And do, do you think it's, do you think that will change now? So yes, I think it will, it will change for sure. Um, I think there's two layers to it, but the first one is the, the actual semiconductor fabs. Yes. Right? I think there we're definitely going to see now these moving onshore again to North America, but also Europe, right? Because especially for this like stuff like GPUs, right? Which is like critical, yeah. Consider critical infrastructure now. Um, also because it's leveraged for AI, right? Right. Um, and that's also probably the more the more high end uh, 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 fabbing of semiconductors. There's a lot of like bread and butter kind of stuff that's already fairly like distributed, right? And it's also easier to spin up fabs all over the world um but uh, yeah i think there's a for good reasons a good focus on this on this high-end cutting edge you know a fabbing um and uh so that's the first layer right a semiconductor fabbing and then the other one is just like yeah the 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 the, the, the fabrication and assembly of the of the printed pcp boards and here too right china had for the longest time not an advantage necessarily in the manufacturing of the board but in the assembly of the board because mm. that's like a very human intensive piece right. right 
Uh, and I think, you know, and it's impossible to compete on price doing this onshore in Europe or North America just because, you know, labor costs are so high. Um, and so I think, you know, the only way to bring that onshore in a competitive way um, for things where the cost matters, right, which in some cases it doesn't, but for the cost matters is through more automation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and automation exists in this field. It's just you have to design with automation in mind. Like if you think about where like, these components are like of microscopic size, they get often like, you know, this picking machines that vacuum suck them. There's essentially a needle, like yeah. in a like a like a blood needle for your blood. It's like as tiny that just sucks it up and grabs it. And so for that all to work reliably and at scale, right and fast, right, the components have to have a reasonably flat surface so they can be picked, you know, uh, with variability. Then the components have to like not be placed too tight with each other, right? So that these pickers have easy access, right? And so there's lots of opportunities here to to improve that. And I think and then if that's done, and I think big leverages here in the, is in the design tools like Flux to enable that, to enable users to do that. Then we're going to see a lot of that also coming on shore. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So that fits into what you guys are doing as well, of course, because you can. You can support that activity as well. Will, will we ever get to the point? Sorry, second last question. <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. one last question. Will we ever get to the point where 3D printing becomes 3D complete manufacture, right? Where you can, I don't know, produce a radio-controlled toy car. I mean, you can you could 3D print a lot of components now, but the the yeah. electronics inside it, of course, are, yes, are still I you said you can't 3D print those, right? Yet. Yeah, I mean, you you definitely can. Uh, we definitely will. Um, I think there's a lot of progress happening, right? I mean, like, you know, I think CD printing too has been like slower than we all thought. Mm. But I think the potential is still here. Um, you see now 3D printing being like, you know, in a lot of industries being adopted for mass manufacturing. That means, you know, that the quality and, and speed, you know, has and cost has gotten to where like that's actually um, competitive as a solution. Um, I know like a company uh, up in, in Canada, right? Uh, uh, Pantheon Design, um, they, they, they don't even call them 3D printers anymore. They call them micro factories, right? Because uh, that's what they are. Um, so I think that's come a long way now. And I think then, you know, us seeing an integration of 3D printing um, with electronics, I think it's going to happen. I think there's going to be a between step where we, we, we don't even have that yet for like a factory to do that. It's typically still right injection molding in one place, PCB manufacturing yeah, something yeah, another, yeah, and then it comes together. And I think we're you know I've seen like um, startups working on that where like they're working on these like self-configurable manufacturing lines where like you have this module one can be a three D printer, the other one is just like an assembly arm, the next one right, and they can like essentially on a on a job by job basis reconfigure each other, and create this customized assembly line, and then produce the product, package it, and all and all uh, and all that. And so I think, you know, that's definitely going to happen um, if you time-wise. I think, you know, for some categories of products, maybe you could argue it's already happening. For other categories, we're maybe like five years out. You know, for some categories, it might never happen, right? Um, but I think, you know, you probably feel for the bulk of it, I could imagine that like on a 10-year span, you know, especially yeah. if you think about the consumer kind of electronics goods. You know, the stuff you buy on Amazon that you have on a 10-year on horizon, you know, uh, you can see a drastic change here. Wow. Okay. So it's still going to be exciting. 
<laughs> that's awesome oh, yeah. I, uh, I, yeah I, I, I'm so glad we had this talk because uh, I, I've been feeling a, a little bit I don't know a little bit cynical about the future of, of physical technology but um, this is all sorts of cool stuff gonna happen that's awesome that's amazing yeah we you know I, I, I always tell people that like think about how Anakin Skywalker made his own protocol droid that's right. the future right. yeah. I want to live in right to in, enable that to give that kind of like leverage to to people and um, to get there, I think it's totally possible. We just have to like build more abstraction layers, you know, and democratize yeah. more of the knowledge and abstract that away. Which takes us all the way back to the start, right? Democratizing technology. Yeah. Looking after your engineers and having good engineer relations. Mateus, thank you so much. This has been fabulous. Really cool. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. Thanks for having bye me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgeek.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgeek.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at voxgeek. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.